welcome back. This is Jacob Hill with GRC Academy. I'm here with Mr. Eric Reed. Eric, how are you doing today? Great, Jacob. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Glad very welcome. All right. Let's talk about you, Eric. Sure. Uh, introduce yourself. What do you do? Um, I am primarily a IT certification instructor. I've been teaching various um, certifications for about 23 years now. I do consulting on the side, but teaching is my primary passion. So most of the time I'm in the classroom helping students achieve certifications, improve their skill sets, and advance their careers. Awesome. Awesome. And I can personally attest to this. Eric taught my certified ethical hacker course a year, a few years ago, and he was amazing. Thank you. (laughs) So hire this guy. If you need certified ethical hacker training, we also hired him for some security plus training. And there were some folks in here who were not technical and really good pass rate, really pleased. So hire Eric. Thank you. you. I appreciate that. And great group to work with. Um, We did have a, a, an excellent class with the security plus groups. Um, for uh, for your organization, so so thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. Tell us about your experience and some of the organizations you've worked with. Well, I started off as a staff instructor in 1999. I went independent in towards the end of 2002. Uh, we had these contractors that would show up at my training center and then they disappear for like two weeks. I'm like, how do I get a gig like that where I can kind of pick and choose the weeks I work? Wow. So I set out to become a contractor. And I've been doing contract training ever since. I do direct training for a variety of Fortune 500 companies. I do a lot of military training, a lot of DOD 8570. And I work directly with several training centers. And I work directly uh, as the instructor on the self-study products, a lot of the EC Council self-study videos, uh, primarily CEH, but I also do CHFI and ECIH and a couple others. That's awesome. And man, that was before LinkedIn and other social media. So I'm, I imagine business uh, development was key back in the day. So Absolutely. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I rely heavily on repeat word of mouth. I'm pretty obsessive about my pass rates. My students almost always, with very few exceptions, pass in the first attempt. I kind of mm-hmm. make sure of that. So everybody's happy at the end of the day, employers, students, and so forth. And yes. uh, they keep coming back. So the word of mouth yeah, is really that's, important. Still is. That's fantastic. I understand that you have some awards. Can you talk to us from that? Yeah. Um, kind of a byproduct of working with the EC Council uh, so closely is I've received uh, their Instructor of the Year Award actually nine times now. Um, wow. That's a global uh, award that they award different regions. So I've been for North America, the Certified EC Council Instructor of the Year. Uh, nine mm-hmm. times, and I've been in their circle of ec- excellence six times in the 18 years or so that I've been teaching CEH. That's that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. What certifications do you teach? Well, primarily my big three are going to be CEH, I do a lot of CEH, uh, a lot of CISSP, and a lot of Security Plus. Um, but I do teach most of the CompTIA catalog. I do exam prep sessions, additional one-on-one type of exam prep coaching for students who have taken training and not got the certification exam. Uh, But my primary focus is I do a lot of CEH. I would say Mm -hmm. far and away, that's the one I do the most. And Mm -hmm. man, I wish I had a tally on the number of CEH students who've taught Mm -hmm. over the years. Between Mm -hmm. the videos and live, it's got to be up in the tens of thousands by now. Yeah. Primarily CEH, without a doubt. That's awesome. How did you start your career? Did you start it in IT? 
Uh, I started as a hacker actually in like 1983. So I saw the movie War Games when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, and got just completely obsessed. Had to have a computer, got an Atari 800 computer with 48K of RAM, wow. no storage device. So I had to, every time I turned it off, I had to retype my basic programming games I created and so forth. I dialed yeah. my first war dialing campaign shortly thereafter. My parents got the first nasty phone bill shortly thereafter that. <laughs> I learned pretty quickly that you don't have to dial one necessarily for it to be a toll call. I didn't know that. Yeah, that Worked that one off digging sprinkler trenches in the front yard that summer, uh, but I was hooked. Been a hacker ever since. So my experience kind of predates the internet. Had a lot of bulletin board dial-ups, a lot of, I can say now, sharing games at the time <laughs> using... Yeah. Various methods from <laughs> Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. I, that's long enough ago. Um, right. But it's always been there ever since. Uh, different hobbies, interests have come and gone. But the one thing that's been static is the passion for computers. And actually, I didn't really get into it professionally until 1999. Really, I, I supported an Apple Talk network at a CBS television uh, affiliate in Sacramento, California in okay. 1988. So I guess that's my first actual IT experience, but fast huh. forward to 1999 when I actually started getting my certifications and became an instructor. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. That's, that's a great story. Thinking about the, the 56K modem. I mean, I, I grew up in the woods and our modem was always worse than everyone else's who was in the city. <laughs> so we, yes. we actually ended up with satellite internet. And I, re I remember trying to play, uh, a game called Star Wars Galaxies, and I would have like a six second, seven second lag. <laughs> yes. Back in the day. I had the direct PC modem at 1.2. And I remember specifically you had 400K down, but you had a 56K dial up for the uploads. <laughs> and it was definitely um, a bit on the laggy side. So I'm with you on that. Yeah, <laughs> that's something that many folks don't have to deal with anymore. So that's yeah. good stories. What do you think that are the best sources out there for keeping up with security and hacking and all the like? Yeah, well, actually, there's a variety of, of podcasts and websites that are that are excellent. Uh, just to name a few off the top of my head, uh, mm -hmm. podcast, Darknet Diaries, Security Now, Hackable, uh, CyberWire. Um, as far as websites, I kind of rotate on those a little bit. I've always loved like Bleeping Computer. Um, there's yeah. Hackaday, Hacker News, Dark Reading. And then the threat intelligence sites are excellent for staying up to date on, on current trends. Uh, of course, there's the classic MITRE.org with the CBE, mm -hmm. the National Vulnerability Database, the NIST and the threat mm -hmm. intelligence feeds are, are all excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, the certifications do a really good job of keeping up with the latest trends and, and latest issues, but they're updated periodically. So there's always a little bit of a latency there. So in class, I generally refer my students to some of the websites where they can stay current on, on what's going on out there. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thanks. Talk about the roles in ethical hacking, because I, you know, there's there's definitely different sides to it. Can you talk about that? Definitely. Um, first off, there's a little bit of confusion between, you know, ethical hacking and penetration testing. Um, ethical mm -hmm. hacking is doing what hackers do, but for defensive purposes with permission from the owner of the target. Really important written permission. Mm -hmm. Penetration testing is a formal methodology. There is definitely a difference. All mm -hmm. penetration testers are ethical hackers, mm -hmm. but not all ethical hackers are penetration testers. Okay. Um, the process is very formal. It's very methodical. It's very detailed and documented. 
and it's designed to give you repeatable results. So one direct career path for working is to ascend to penetration testing, but it's also an excellent foundation for anything. A hacker is your adversary in information security, plain and simple. So knowing thy enemy and what they do is always going to help looking at incident response, forensics, analysis, bolstering the security in your network, network defense, and so forth. So penetration tester, security analyst, consultant, incident response, forensic investigation are all various types of job roles. And the duties associated with those actually varies from organization to organization. Okay. That's very interesting. I, I actually hadn't thought about the differences between penetration testing and ethical hacking. That's, that's interesting. Thank you. Yeah. If someone wanted to get into ethical hacking or penetration testing, where could they start? Foundational TCP IP protocol knowledge. First and okay. foremost, you got to understand how TCP IP works because everything is facilitated through that protocol suite. So mm -hmm. an, an in-depth understanding of TCP IP Programming languages are very helpful, but not necessary. We've got a lot of tools out there that are turnkey. And one of my shortcomings is that I'm not a developer by background. Yeah, I never really got around to focusing on it. And I've always felt a little bit at a disadvantage of that. I'm, I'm no enough to be dangerous, but I don't write my own scripts and my own exploits. Um, right. A career path that starts with a good level of experience with different types of incidents and issues that you're mm -hmm. going to encounter. Um, everybody wants to take a direct line straight to ethical hacker, but there's mm -hmm. definitely help desk, SOC analyst, mm -hmm. and a variety mm -hmm. of steps you should take along the way to get mm -hmm. the experience level. It's kind of like, mm -hmm. I guess, an attorney doing their time in the DA's office before they go and hang out their shingle or a doctor doing their residency. Yeah. You need to see lots and lots of different types of security incidents and examples to yes. be able to draw from uh, drawing that experience. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a very important, especially if you're going to into ethical hacking, because um, there's a lot of cybersecurity people in compliance and compliance and such who are not necessarily technical. And I think in that field that that can work. Uh, but when it comes to risk assessments and when it comes to actual hacking, uh, it really helps to understand what's happening under the hood. You know, and I, I appreciate what you mentioned about the risk assessments. Because when I first started teaching the CEH, for example, it was all offensive security. We didn't talk mm -hmm. about policies. We didn't talk about incident response. We didn't talk about risk management. Every mm -hmm. course I teach these days has some risk management built in. Most mm -hmm. students are never going to do actual risk management or calculations yeah. of annualized loss expectancies, but it's important yeah. that they understand what it is and how it plays into the whole security model. So I would right. add a nice, well-rounded baseline education, even in areas that you're not necessarily going to be utilizing on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. I think the critical piece about that is being able to express the risk to upper management and being able to express it in a way that they'll understand. Absolutely. So You've got to be able to talk the language to the technical yes. level of your audience. Absolutely critical. That's one of the big focuses of CISSP is to get everybody talking on the same page the technical types and the managers and everybody understanding everybody else's concerns and roles. Right. Right. Excellent. All right. Let's talk about the five stages of hacking. Ah. Well, I've got a graphic I'm going to incorporate here. So um, I've been teaching, like I said, CEH for 18 years now. We have a five-step hacking cycle that we use directly in CEH. There's different 
descriptions of this process, different vendors, different references. But in a nutshell, it's about five stages of, of, of exploitation. All right, so this is a direct excerpt from CEH. This is actually from version 11. We changed the slides a little bit in V12. And this one actually has a dedicated slide for each stage. So I'm just going to mm -hmm. kind of run through the basics. The first thing we're going to do is collect information. We're going to call that footprinting or reconnaissance. It falls into passive and active varieties, which means direct interaction or not direct interaction with the target. Uh, passive and active in general is going unnoticed passive or taking some risk of being noticed, but getting really good stuff when you start actively engaging your target. Uh, there's a good bit of time spent on reconnaissance, which is basically collecting information to plan your attack. The next phase is an active flavor of reconnaissance in itself. Scanning is where you're using a network scanner like Nmap and you're probing the target specifically, looking for open ports, running services, service versions, et cetera, and ultimately vulnerabilities. Stage three is gaining access. At this point, you're actually crossing the threshold you're engaging the system, you're entering the system. At this point, you're intruding and breaking the law. So really important mm -hmm. to have written permission. Yes. And then you maintain access. You want to ensure that you can continue to revisit the system at will. And this is typically done by installing a backdoor or maybe creating a user account that can be used to provide remote access. And then it's whatever it is you set out to do. Uh, if you're stealing information from the box, if you're setting up a base camp to pivot to other systems, uh, if you're using it to scan an attack or password crackers, there's an execution of applications typically takes place at this stage. And then finally, to wrap it all up, you clear your tracks, uh, primarily clearing log files to remove any evidence of compromise, but it also includes any evidence that's left behind, registry keys, applications, and so forth. You want to kind of clean up after yourself. So the tools and the techniques have come and gone for decades, but this five-step hacking cycle has remained pretty static for, for, for eons. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a, a very specific sequence of events, but lots of variation on how to complete each task at each phase. Mm -hmm. Can you go to the first phase and talk a little bit about uh, OSINT and uh, the role of social media and all the information we're putting out there about ourselves plays Absolutely. into that? Absolutely. So passive is also often referred to as OSINT, which is open source intelligence gathering. And that's all about using publicly available resources that anybody can access. Social media is huge for that. Uh, when somebody posts to LinkedIn, for example, they post their resume information, their job role, their day in and day out duties. Well, it stands to reason that if an attacker wants to hack an organization, they find employees that work for that organization and they create a profile on the employees, what their mm -hmm. duties are, job roles, that implies technologies that are being used. And it also is prime fuel for social engineering attacks where you send phishing emails, impersonation, or you even try to brute force the employee's login information. Mm -hmm. So open source in general, there is so much information on the internet that is freely available to anybody it's scary how much really detailed intel that you can gather on an organization and just using publicly available sources. There's a yeah. variety of harvesting utilities that'll do this for you automatically. The Harvester, mm -hmm. OSINT framework, and a bunch of others, and the Cali platforms, and some dedicated commercial utilities as well. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Everybody's putting out their information. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it too. You know, yeah. I gotta, maybe I should go look at that and make sure <laughs> it's not too much. Well, I mean, it's, if you want to be social in today's day and age, you're out on social media somehow, some way. It's just a matter of being cautious on what you post, I suppose. Yeah. But there's a lot right. of detail out there. Yeah. That's right. Can you go to the maintaining access slide? Sure. Because I think a lot of folks, they think about, oh, uh, they got hacked or whatever. But typically, they find out that you were hacked about six to eight months after it happened. And so the maintaining access is really scary because you could be hacked and you just don't know it yet, you know? Absolutely. So there's these things called advanced persistent threats. There's actually a dual definition to that. One is a system internally that's been compromised that you don't know about. Yeah. And it, for an extended period of time, provides a point of access into the network. It allows for data to be sent covertly out to the attacker. It allows for remote administration access, scanning other systems. And the whole concept of threat hunting is built primarily around internal threats that have, mm. have, have already been compromised. Mm -hmm. So you're using different types of techniques to hunt for different threats that have already made it past your gatekeepers, your mm -hmm. perimeter security, and things like listening ports, registry keys, et cetera. We're all indicators of compromise. So you're looking for mm -hmm. evidence that systems have been exploited. And the average lifespan for a zero-day exploit is, mm -hmm. depending on the source you read, 312 days roughly, which mm -hmm. means these things are being used for almost a year before they're even discovered. And there's lots of vulnerabilities and, and exploits that we don't know about. Yeah, that sort of. And thing what's a zero day? What's a, I'm sorry. What's a zero day exploit? Uh, the zero day is is an unknown vulnerability. It's a favorite of hackers and nation state actors and governments, yeah. agencies, and so forth, because <laughs> nobody knows it's there and there's no patch for it. So when a vulnerability is discovered, then the vendor releases a patch. The patch gets hopefully tested properly and then applied. Then the vulnerability yeah. is no longer there. So it's in an attacker's best interest. If they find a vulnerability mm -hmm. to not really tell anybody about it, continue to use it, guaranteed mm -hmm. success until it gets fixed. So that's a zero day. Yes. Thank you. Sure. That was, that was really fascinating. What are five common ways that bad guys will compromise company networks? Tried and true first go-to is social engineering and phishing emails, without a mm -hmm. doubt. After all these years, you would think that nobody would ever fall for a phishing email because you hear about them all the time, it's yes. still hands down the easiest way to gain access to a network. Get a human who already has access to click on something and leverage their access, plain and simple. Yes. I've seen some really horrendous phishing emails over the years, like, you've got to be kidding me, that is your best attempt? I'm not falling for this. And some right. really slick ones, like, ooh, yeah. wow. Best course of action on that, always pick up the phone and call whoever supposedly sent you the email. Hey, I've got this yeah. email from you. Is this actually from you? Try mm -hmm. and true way to verify, right? Otherwise, yes. there's other social engineering techniques where they may continue to impersonate and then make you feel relaxed and assured that it's actually legitimate. So I'd say first and foremost, phishing, lots of malware attacks, right? Getting a Trojan installed on somebody's system or some sort of spyware, uh, password mm -hmm. attacks, Passwords are the weakest form of authentication we have. They're mm -hmm. the most widely used. We're just really now seeing a big push for multi-factor, and that mm -hmm. could not be soon enough. Um, insider threats are 
also a huge issue, excuse me, the um, uh, insider threat is anybody inside the perimeter that has been compromised unknowingly or somebody that is disgruntled or malicious to begin with, mm-hmm. or somebody that even hires onto the company to sell their access to the highest bidder. Yeah. And then without a doubt, unpatched software vulnerabilities. Patch management, absolutely essential. A lot of times it doesn't happen in a really timely fashion, but you got to get those patches tested and deployed as soon as they come out with reasonable testing to close vulnerabilities. I mean, they're being discovered every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Can you talk about a significant hack that happened in the last few years and why it was interesting? There's been a lot of really high profile data breaches over the years. And every so often a big one comes along and you're like, really? The organizations you think would never be compromised. And I always refer to the Equifax data breach. Okay. There's a couple of things that went with that. First off, it was a credit agency. It's like, that can't happen, but it did. You know, 143 (laughs) million credit records uh, compromised. And it was actually a stale patch, right? Um, It was an Apache Uh, patch. It was about a month old that probably should have Ooh. been tested and deployed. Just um, a month? Ooh. Yeah, just, yeah, a month or six weeks, something like that. Yeah. It's not and, that long. Um, yeah. So they should have should have applied it, but they didn't. And um, and that led to one of the most highly publicized data breaches of all time. Um, the big ones that I always remember the years, the TJ Maxx, the Target, the Starwoods, the OPMs. Um, there's yeah. you know, plenty of them over the years. But the one that always stands out in my mind for whatever reason is, is the Equifax. Yeah. Thank you. Let's talk about social engineering. Many believe that humans are the weakest link in a company's defenses. Do you agree with that? I do, without a doubt. We're, we're human, plain and simple. We're imperfect. <laughs> and what I like to emphasize is we need to be trained. So there's a lot of harsh statements about human stupidity and no patch mm-hmm. for it. So I think that maybe is a little bit extreme. Let's yeah. go with there's no patch for lack of education, lack <laughs> of informedness. So mm-hmm. if you think about it, your end users, they're not security professionals. They don't mm-hmm. do this day in and day out. So an accountant, much the same as I don't know the basics of accounting, an accountant doesn't know the basics of, of cybersecurity. So first and foremost, you have to train your employees security awareness and education, and then you retrain them and retrain them and retrain them. Lots of phishing campaigns to be sure people aren't clicking on malicious links. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a programming and reprogramming type of scenario. Even with that being said, you still have your employee's attention span for a limited period in those trainings. And the mm-hmm. second they walk out the door, they're forgetting everything you said, and they're yes. going back to their <laughs> activities. So yes, repetition, right. reinforcement, and making it lively and fun, essential. Gamification, comp- mm-hmm. uh, competitions, contests with prizes, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. are all great mm-hmm. ways to keep your, uh, your, your humans engaged. Yeah. Awesome. Can you talk about a good social engineering story? I'll talk about a personal one, if that's okay. Uh, this is one I like to, to kind of refer back to in uh, my, my early days. So <laughs> I saw the movie War Games, and there's a scene in War Games where Matthew Broderick's character gets called to the office on purpose so that he could open the drawer and look at the password to log into the grading system for that day. And mm-hmm. that kind of sparked my imagination. So when mm-hmm. I was in eighth grade, I actually had an opportunity to 
go work in the office at my K through eight school. And while the receptionist was at lunch, myself and another student would kind of man the phones and in uh-huh. the front desk. And yeah. my whole intent there was, I wonder if I'll figure out where all of the passwords are for the grading systems <laughs> and so forth. And I did actually, and it was actually post noted on the monitor of the computer sitting right back in the office. <laughs> so there were some security issues right off the bat that were, that were present. It was facing the public and actually, you know, you could kind of look and maybe even see it written down. Uh, much to my dismay, and I, I did kind of test this a little bit. I'll just leave it at that. My Atari's <laughs> Atasky character set was mm-hmm. incompatible with the ASCII set for the number to dial in. So I'd get mm. a carrier toad, but like nothing else. So I went through all this stuff and I honestly, I just wanted to see if I could do it. I had no intent yeah. of changing grades or anything. Right, right, right. I think enough time is, is passed where I can go ahead and speak about that freely now. But, um, <laughs> but that was my, my first social engineering attack. Um, in a pen test, we'll do a variety of pretexts to manipulate humans into giving up information. Some of them are sneakier than others. Um, one of my favorites, though, is perimeter intrusion, where you actually try to gain access to the physical perimeter. It is amazing how far you can get into an organization before you're challenged. There's a lot more verification these days, badges, secure entrances. Yeah. But for you know years there, you dress up like a copy repair guy, a Xerox technician, yes. look like a man on a mission, and nobody would stop you. That guy's going to fix the copier. Right. So um, there's um, a variety of different pretexts uh, for social engineering, a lot of impersonation, uh, a lot of phishing emails. Yeah. Yeah. How do we help our people fortify them against social engineering attacks? Security awareness, education, and training. And actually those three terms sound like they're referring to exactly the same thing. Yeah. General security awareness is you get your end users in a room, you talk about the basics, hackers don't share passwords, things like that. Mm-hmm. Security mm-hmm. training is actually directed training on procedures. Here's exactly mm-hmm. how you do your job in accordance mm-hmm. with security policies. So you're training right. them to actually do something step-by-step mm-hmm. in a secure fashion. Even with that being said, people are human, they cut corners, they don't want to take that step, they skip it. Yeah. So that is also why the humans are the weak link in the security chain, because we have a tendency to cut corners. Yes. At the end of the day, we've got all this process and procedure, but unless people carry it out perfectly, you got weaknesses again. Mm-hmm. The, the mm-hmm. final one is uh, security education. So security education gives you more information than you need for your current job role but it's meant for targeting that next job role or that next promotion. So mm-hmm. there's a difference mm-hmm. between the three, but the awareness, education, and training is the most important countermeasure for social engineering attacks and lots of phishing campaign. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Let's shift into mobile device security. Can you tell us how are mobile devices usually hacked? There's a good degree of social engineering with mobile devices, um, mm-hmm. malicious apps, um, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Um, probably more of an issue with Android since you can install from untrusted sources right out of the box. So there's a couple of different policies with App Store, Apple, and Android. With Android, you typically get a little bit more granularity and control, but less mm-hmm. security inherently. Apple's a little bit tighter. Everything has to go through the App Store. So malicious apps are always going to be an issue, um, coercing somebody into downloading and installing it, um, patches and so forth. 
Operating system vulnerabilities, like any conventional system, uh, then you get into, again, the social engineering, the phishing attacks. There is a good bit of man-in-the-middle attacks on mobile mm-hmm. devices. So if I'm mm-hmm. in a public place, first off, just don't connect to anything in a public place, and you'll eliminate a lot of security issues right off the bat. Yeah, I can walk into any public place, and I, I will guarantee, I'll bet you $1,000 within two minutes flat, I'm going to have somebody connected to my phone, free public <laughs> Wi-Fi, and I'll yeah. be intercepting something useful every time. Yes. It's like fish in a barrel. What do you think is more secure when it comes down to it? I'm an Android guy personally. Yeah. I have opinions, but what do you think? Um, inherently, policy-wise, Apple is going to be more secure. They've just got more, more control of the process. Um, the OS itself, heavily locked down, uh, not open source, et cetera. Um, You have to purchase from the app store. It's supposed to go through this vetting process. So just policy and and process-wise, I have to say Apple. But there are some advantages to having more control over your Android device. I'm also an Mm -hmm. Android user, have been for Mm -hmm. for years. Um, You can do more with your Android device. Um, You Mm -hmm. can install applications, write applications from untrusted sources. But Mm -hmm. that also is direct opposite to security is that functionality, that ease of use. So it does open you up to more potential security issues, but also gives you more direct control of your device. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the current app store policy is on iOS, but from what I understand, they do an initial code review, but um, mm-hmm. after that updates are, are not reviewed by a person. So, uh, yeah. you know, if you get foreign governments on there trying to do something bad. They have the resources to put out something good and then later add something bad. So it's like, yeah. it's very difficult. Yeah. Very and then problem. legitimate apps that have obvious glaring security issues, like certain social media apps that are sending all sorts of information about our daily lives back to a foreign state. Just leave it at yeah. That. Yeah. True. How can businesses prevent their mobile devices from being compromised? Um, good emphasis on mobile device management, uh, mm-hmm. which comes in different shapes and sizes. You got mobile application management, mobile email management, mobile device mm-hmm. management, policy mm-hmm. management. A multifaceted mobile device management solution will give you additional administrative control over the device, uh, mm-hmm. the ability to secure the data, the ability to uh, wipe it remotely, um, yeah. control what types of features are enabled or disabled. At the end of the day, a mobile device is is portable, right? They get lost, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. they get stolen. And I also teach forensics courses and mm. there's a bunch of forensic software out there that'll dump all sorts of useful information from that mobile device. Um, a uh, eval copy of Andriller, for example, on an Android phone, if that thing's rooted, it dumps all sorts of information. I actually have mm-hmm. a, a, a sample report I show my students in class, and that drives the point home. You should not root the device. Here's the possible issues. And then the mobile device management, the remote wiping is essential, where really these days you're just removing or deleting the key. So it's a cryptographic mm-hmm. erasure, but that goes mm-hmm. a long way to securing stolen devices. You mentioned multi-factor authentication before, and many people think that's the thing that'll take care of all the security issues, but some of them are not as secure as others. Could you, what's the least secure method? SMS, without a doubt. Yeah, subject to social engineering attacks. There's also a variety of like Signal 7 protocol uh, vulnerabilities. 
uh, exploiting trust and carrier networks for interoperability. It, although fairly difficult, it is possible to intercept somebody's cellular communications. Uh, there's SIM uh, attacks on the subscriber identity modules. There's also the interception of the SMS messages themselves. And then there's social engineering, where the user is being asked to disclose that PIN code that was sent to them. So with that one, that's going to be the, the most, uh, the least secure. Then you get into like biometrics or mm -hmm. another um, uh, possession-based, something I have based authentication, mm -hmm. where you could use a YubiKey or, or something like that. Um, the problem with single-factor authentication, especially passwords, is that doesn't prove you are who you say you are. They're cracked, mm -hmm. stolen, lent, coerced, and so forth. Right. When you combine a something I have with that, less likely the attacker would compromise both. And then the something I am, even less likely they're going to compromise because now you're talking about chopping off somebody's thumb. Yeah. Removing their eye. <laughs> what you see in the movies, there's actually hacks on all this, but the more factors that you incorporate, the less likely somebody will successfully exploit all three. Excellent. Thank you. Let's talk about... Public Wi-Fi. What are the dangers when you connect to a public Wi-Fi network? Interception, eavesdropping, impersonation, denial of service. You could kind of go on and on. Don't ever use public Wi-Fi. Just flat out <laughs> don't use it. Well, I'm going to save my data minutes. Spend the money on the data, minute, the, the, yeah. the data right? Your cellular connections always going to be way more secure. If you do need to use public Wi-Fi, then use a VPN. Uh, VPN solutions give you a secured, authenticated connection no matter what network you're connected on. They're not a bad idea, even over cellular, because there's ways to eavesdrop on cellular as well. Mm. But um, like, like I mentioned earlier, you can walk in any public place. I can take my phone and I can name my Wi-Fi tethering network anything I like. There's mm -hmm. nothing illegal about doing that. Mm -hmm. If you connect to it, that's on you. I'm mm -hmm. allowed to monitor my own network. And if you connected to me, sorry about your luck. Mm -hmm. So we actually did an experiment with that in a hotel once while I was training mm -hmm. at a conference. Mm -hmm. I stood up my phone. I called the network Starbucks with an I because we were mm -hmm. right across from the Starbucks and they didn't have <laughs> a wireless network. And within two minutes, I had my eight maximum concurrent connections. I was running Wireshark for root, which is a protocol analyzer. We captured two sets of corporate authentication credentials wow. being transmitted in the clear, which is also oh, a wow. bad, bad idea. But their POP, IMAP, uh, and SMTP clients we're configured to use no SSL TLS. It's mm. pretty easy to compromise. Mm. And that was in wow. like three minutes flat. Oh my goodness. Yeah, because <laughs> the default answer is, well, everything's encrypted these days. TLS, everything's encrypted, but not always. Not everything. <laughs> not best always. practices are one thing, but there's situations where people don't follow best practices. You know, so in transfers, encryption, you just go on and on. Mm-hmm. That's, that's fascinating. Can you talk about what happens when you connect to your local coffee shop's wireless network? Okay, well, it depends on, on how they have it set up. So when you connect to the coffee shop, you're authenticating to a network that probably requires no authentication. So you're connecting to it, you're associating, but anybody else on that network can also associate. So now you're at layer two with other nodes on the same network, and that immediately gives interoperability. Now, in some more robust environments, there's individual VLANs that are yeah. actually allocated to each device, which eliminates your layer two attacks like our poisoning. But just by being on the network at layer two access, I have the ability to interoperate with other machines or interact with other machines. Mm -hmm. That opens them directly to exploitation attacks. 
open Android debugging bridges, things like that with Android. And in addition to that, even if I'm not connected to the network, you still have confidentiality concerns. Mm -hmm. So I can listen in on the communications I can intercept without ever connecting to anybody. Mm. And that's where your layer two encryption, your WEP, your WPAs and, and so forth come in. But man, WEP, we'll crack that in about 30 seconds flat, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. You can put the key in Wireshark, immediately decrypt packets. Um, although WEP is horribly outdated, you still see it all over the place, believe it or not. Yeah. So some of the issues are confidentiality and then direct access. Yeah, yeah. Something interesting too about uh, a, a lot of the wireless networks are protected by WPA2. People assume that, okay, if I'm connected to a hotel network and they have a password, well, that's secure. Well, the problem with that is that the uh, encryption on that wireless network is protected by that same password across the board. So there's no unique encryption keys per device. WPA3 changes that, but that's newer and you probably won't see that being adopted for a while. Yeah, there, it, through the, um, the different iterations of web and WPA, they enhance the transport layer security. And then the dictionary of brute force attacks, dictionary primarily, are always still an issue with PSK authentication or pre-shared mm -hmm. key. WPA3 comes along and uses the Dragonfly key exchange mm -hmm. um, or SAE, which mm -hmm. is definitely more secure than the standard password base. But mm -hmm. there's there's vulnerabilities in every iteration of wireless from the yes. beginning to, to current. Yes, yes. All right, so we're connected to the local coffee shop's Wi-Fi, but there's a bad guy on that network. What could happen? Um. Couple of things we talked about in the you know the, the inherent dangers um, eavesdropping, listening mm -hmm. on your communication, man in the middle. Um, you can actually facilitate very directed ARP poisoning based mm. man in the middle attacks. And one of my favorite king tools of all time was FaceSniff. FaceSniff was five dollars. You mm. installed it on an Android rooted device, and whatever network you were connected to, it would show you all the Facebook sessions, and you would. Mm. tap on a Facebook session and you were in, you were wow. in their Facebook profile. Oh my. Really would freak people out at parties and in class, <laughs> but um, used to love to demonstrate that. Yeah. When Facebook went full SSL TLS, then that, that vulnerability was, was closed and it became mm -hmm. not, not such an awesome app. Still a cool session hijacking app. So the eavesdropping, uh, malware infections, device to device attacks, direct interaction, and then again, rogue networks where you're just intercepting as, as a man in the middle. Yeah. Again, to protect yourself, use a VPN. Uh, even mm -hmm. if you're using a public Wi-Fi, you still have end-to-end -end, uh, transport uh, encryption and authentication, mm -hmm. and that should secure you against any eavesdropping attacks. There's always the risk also with the VPN provider. So anytime mm -hmm. you use somebody yes. else's service, mm -hmm. it's going through their stuff. So you, at mm -hmm. some point, you got to just hit the I believe button and, and, and believe they're a reputable vendor. Right. But uh, every so often, my dad calls me up and says, "Hey, let's 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 talk about VPNs." I'm like, "We we got one. Remember the last time we talked about? It? Was it good?" I'm like, "Well, yeah. You know, as we mentioned before, it's a <laughs> reputable one. Want to trust it?" But um, they're also an option for anonymizing and and, and some other more uh, shady purposes. But uh, <laughs> VPNs definitely are are one of your your first considerations for securing. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about 4G and 5G hacking. Yes. You alluded to this. Most people assume that cellular connections are safe, but are they? Um, they're way more safe than public Wi-Fi. Let's just start with that. 
there's still specialized equipment, um, radios and so forth, where you can impersonate cell phone towers. Uh, mm -hmm. It is possible to decrypt the data. Mm -hmm. be honest with you, I've never done any direct 4G or 5G interception or hacking. Yeah. Just yeah. hadn't gotten around to it. Um, I will put up, you know, hot spots and things like that, play around mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, um, a few different types of evil twin attacks where you impersonate mm -hmm. a cell phone tower. A friend of mine, Wayne Burke, who's one of the scariest pen testers on the planet. So shout out to Wayne. <laughs> had some pretty cool equipment at uh, one of the last conferences we attended before the mm -hmm. pandemic came along. Mm -hmm. So he was doing some pretty cool stuff with that. But uh, mm. personally, I had just never gotten around to it. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's still it, You know, there's not as much malware out there for Linux because Windows has the market share, you know. And so it's easiest to compromise wireless. Uh, well, wireless, Wi-Fi. They're all wireless. It's all radio frequencies. What I, th what I thought was interesting is it's just in us to think, okay, I'm not connected to someone's Wi-Fi, so it should be safe. But I think your point back to using a VPN, even when you're connected to cellular, is not a bad idea. Yeah. Unbounded media in general is wonderfully convenient because no wires and horribly insecure because, again, no wires. So yes. anybody within range can pick up that signal. Let's shift to bad USB. What is bad USB? Well, there's a couple of different ways you could look at dangerous USB devices. Uh, mm -hmm. First off, bad USB is it's an exploit. It takes advantage of the firmware and the devices, mm -hmm. and it modifies the actual behavior. Mm -hmm. I think one of the best examples of this is the rubber ducky. All right, you plug mm -hmm. this thing in, and it starts opening a command shell and sending keystrokes mm -hmm. and running scripts. Just by plugging in the device, it makes the system think it's a keyboard. Yeah. And as such, it's allowed because it's a keyboard, not a storage device. Mm -hmm. And then it just starts, you know, Windows key, um, arm for run and open a command prompt. And it starts hammering away shell commands. <laughs> Pretty scary. <laughs> so these can actually be used for keystroke injection, uh, spreading malware, network sniffing, brute force attacks, authentication mm -hmm. attacks. And then... Um, charging cables and other types of, um, like in public places, a USB charging station may actually deliver malware to your device. Mm -hmm. um, that could be a debugging mm -hmm. bridge type of interface. Mm -hmm. um, it's best to use dedicated charging cables that don't actually have the data leads. Those mm -hmm. get annoying because you don't remember which ones are charging and which ones file transfer. And that's right, right. kind of annoying. And su supply chain security is something that has been more of a focus uh, these days because I'm not going to mention any names, but you could buy it from that famous e-commerce platform out there and uh, it could come packed with some goodies. So you got to really make sure, you know, try to at least figure out if this is a reputable brand. And, yep. and even then, there's been some interesting stories about foreign governments uh, sending out some equipment, makes a pit stop somewhere, adds something to it. And uh, how would, you would never know. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. supply chain security, as you insinuated, very important as well. I have a quick story on that. Recently, I got a USB to HDMI adapter. And mm -hmm, the last mm -hmm. time I bought one of those was like 50, 60 bucks. I found one for like $19 on a well-known uh -huh. e-commerce platform. Like you said, <laughs> I get this thing. It comes with a little driver's disc, a little three and a half inch CDR driver's disc. I'm like, what is this? I don't have an optical drive to even run this thing in. And why am yeah. I installing drivers anyway? 
So the little leaflet that came with it named the driver. I did a quick Google search and it lit up all these security oh. sites. There was malware built into that driver that was meant to merely bridge a USB to HDMI uh, connection. No reason you would need an extra driver for that. And I actually returned it and reported it to this e-commerce platform and never heard anything back about it. So again, yeah. buyer beware, just like you said. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. that is definitely something to worry about. Yeah, we could talk further a good when we deal. Can... Yeah. You find yeah, something for like yeah. $19, you should probably suspect the, uh, the, the manufacturing process. Yeah. yeah. That's very interesting. As you mentioned, the USB devices, they can act as anything. So even if yeah. you buy a keyboard, plug that thing in. And typically if a driver is not installed on the computer, Windows Update will try to reach out and grab the appropriate driver that the device says, this is the right driver if it doesn't uh, have a native one to make it work. And yeah. so that's one way these things that are getting automatically installed. And then your keyboard could also be a network card or, you know, a microphone <laughs> as well. All, kind, all kinds of things going on. Yeah. 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 How could bad USB be used to compromise a computer or a network? It could uh, deliver exploits. Um, it could be used as a protocol analyzer, packet sniffer. Um, mm -hmm. There's um, the land turtle uh, was another cool gadget from five pack shop. So you had the rubber ducky, which was the keystroke injection. And mm -hmm. you had the land turtle, which acted as a remote access network sniffer, mm -hmm. a remote access port. So they could be used, um, you know, all sorts of different ways. Um, the, um, Countermeasures for this, data blockers, uh, disabling auto runs and auto plays, keep software and firmware up to date, verify mm -hmm. the driver installation. Um, a variety of endpoint detection pro products will also um, look for malicious yeah. devices, um, uh, host-based intrusion detection or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And then always be cautious when the thrill of a good deal looks too good like your HDMI USB adapter for <laughs> a third of the price, you should probably suspect mm -hmm. these low-cost devices and yeah. suspect the supply chain or manufacturing process. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Let's shift to printers. <laughs> I, IT help desks hate printers. Uh, I don't really care for them either, yeah. but they're famous for being an attack vector. How, would, how could a compromised printer be used? Well, printers do maintain data locally, right? They spool up okay. print jobs. So there's local storage for spooling the job and then printing it out. Um, those hard drives are almost never sanitized mm -hmm. when a printer mm -hmm. is returned from a lease or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's direct data salvaging, carving attacks on the drive. Um, a compromised printer that uses TCP IP is a node like anything else. Mm -hmm. So the same issue with the IoT devices, if it has an IP address and a pulse, Mm -hmm. I could probably leverage it for some sort of access mm -hmm. or pivot or at the very least denial of service mm -hmm. just by connecting to it. Mm -hmm. um, exfiltrating data, a printer could send copies of documents or print jobs mm -hmm. to remote locations. Mm -hmm. um, they could perform brute force login attacks. Um, a lot of printers have network mm -hmm. access capabilities. You could use those to run authentication attacks. They could be used to spread ransomware. Uh, they could be used for denial service, just sending packets from, you know, bot agents or whatever's installed. Mm -hmm. So think of it, anything with an IP address, think of it as another computer. It's subject to a lot of the same issues. 
your doorbell, for example, though, you don't really think in that category, but it's mm-hmm. a computer. Mm-hmm. Computer that can be compromised. Yes. Yeah. Let's shift to ransomware, everybody's <laughs> favorite topic. Tell us about ransomware and how it typically works. We're going to encrypt your stuff and you're going to pay us money and we'll send you the decryption key. That's how it works. Um, It is typically propagated through normal malware infection vectors, Mm -hmm. social engineering. Uh, Your computer was caught visiting an unauthorized site or whatever. And now you're going to pay the piper or you don't get your data back. Yeah. So you have encryption of all your data with an unknown key, which you're never in a million years going to probably decrypt it. It's a nice strong AES or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's also the possibility that you're not going to get the encryption key, even if you pay the ransom. Uh, So there's some concerns with number one, paying ransom because that mm -hmm. guarantees they'll be back for more without a doubt. You may not actually get your data back, but what a great business model. I mean, you cannot deny it's a great way to make money unethically and you know, really sleazy, but nonetheless, I've got a student that actually makes a really good living. He actually attended my, my CEH course and my uh, ECSA security analyst mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. which is a pen testing course. And he targets local city municipalities and uses ransomware statistics as his initial talking point mm-hmm. and ends up turning that into security assessments and pen testing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. implementing defense against ransomware. Mm-hmm. So the big one, without a doubt, was WannaCry, Petya, mm-hmm. you know, CryptoLocker, mm-hmm. and those all exploited the Eternal Blue vulnerability that mm-hmm. was published with the MS17010 vulnerability, mm-hmm. which is one of, I like to call the big three over the years, mm-hmm. uh, Microsoft exploits. Mm-hmm. We had the RPC DCOM back when mm-hmm. I first started teaching CH in 2005, Yeah, the MS08067 around 2008, the 10.010. And uh, the server message block protocol has been fixed to patch that vulnerability, but you still mm-hmm. see a lot of the, of the vulnerable version out there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this mm-hmm. ransomware spreads in a very worm-like fashion or mm-hmm. through direct social engineering attacks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can we protect ourselves from it? <laughs> Protected, unencrypted backups, um, mm-hmm. security awareness education, phishing training. It's heavily reliant on social mm-hmm. engineering to get you to actually install the malware. Mm-hmm. So general malware prevention uh, techniques and considerations and having secure backups, protected backups mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a secure location that doesn't get encrypted itself. So mm-hmm. secure backups are a good countermeasure. Excellent. Let's talk about IoT hacking. What are the risks of those connected consumer devices that might be 999, 1999? Yeah. You know? uh, talk to us about that. Yeah, I've got a, a couple of great stories for that if we if we got a little bit of time. But um, the IoT device, like we mentioned with the multi-function printer, it's got an IP address, it's a computer, you should treat it as such. Mm-hmm. When you install a doorbell or you install Alexa, be careful not to say that too loud because she'll answer back, <laughs> or any of these other devices, you've got surveillance considerations. They're accessible from the outside the world. The vendor can get to them. They shouldn't be on the same subnet as your sensitive uh, resources or devices. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, a Furbo was given to me okay. once upon a time yeah. for my dog. It's a dog yeah. treat launcher. So yeah. I'll fast forward here. I train him to use it and put it in the corner of the kitchen, forget about it. Mm-hmm. Later that night, we're sitting on the couch watching TV and my phone dinks, and it's a email from the Furbo people. And the subject line is highlights from my dog's day. And I'm like, you 
got to be kidding me. These are Ooh. not random video clips from the camera. Mm -hmm. They are. Mm -hmm. uh, so I show my wife, hey, look, honey, and knowing full well, she's going to tell me to go unplug that thing. <laughs> and there's actually a scene where my dog is sitting, walking through the kitchen. And here she comes walking through the kitchen, legs and a towel wrapped around her. Uh, just got out of the shower. Oh, no. So video surveillance. And needless to say, the Furbo got boxed up. We removed yeah. the app and it was never heard from again. And then we had an Alexa issue as well. That was just creepy. I won't uh, lay out the whole story here. But Alexa asked us a follow-up question that there's no way she could have guessed at. Oh. We were talking about Liam Neeson and Chris Hemsworth watching Men in Black International. My wife commented that Liam Neeson must be tall because he's standing next to Chris Hemsworth and he's mm -hmm. tall. Mm -hmm. I ask Alexa, hey, how old is Liam Neeson? He's 74 years old. Would you also like to know how tall he is? Oh, and my we both goodness. kind of looked at each other and said, oh, that was creepy. Oh. So Alexa got a timeout for a few weeks on that one. Yeah, 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 I would say. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of scary stuff. <laughs> Can you give some advice to small businesses and how they might be able to protect themselves and what concerns you might have based on, you know, a small business being of 25 to 50 people, what do you think they should focus on from a security standpoint? Yeah. You, you have some uh, unique challenges with small organizations because they don't have, um, as, um, as many resources for policy development procedures and so forth. Uh, they also have a tendency to be a lot less formal. Uh, yeah. more informal environments, yeah. which means inherently less adherence to, to corporate policy. But um, one of the biggest things you can do for security for the humans is the security awareness and education. So mm -hmm. having some degree of that, having somebody come in and actually do it is always a good idea because they've mm -hmm. got effective methods for training. Um, you should do regular employee training and mm -hmm. education. Mm -hmm. And again, it needs to be fun. So this goes back mm -hmm. to the countermeasures for social engineering, mm -hmm. strong password policies without a doubt, um, password managers, multi-factor yes. authentication should be considered, um, patch management, regular software updates, yeah. make sure that all systems are up to date. Mm -hmm. In a smaller environment, there's a lot more tendency for your patching to become lax or mm -hmm. even non-existence. Mm -hmm. So you, you definitely need to update your systems. Um, access controls, firewalls, antivirus software, Firewalls. I can't tell you how many small environments have almost no firewalling configured. Mm. They've got something, they got a, a, a Linksys router or something like that. Yeah. But no restrictions, whatever. It's wide open. It's pretty scary. And they just don't know any better. It's an out of yeah. the solution, out of the box solution. They plug mm. it in, it works. Hey, everybody's got internet access. So yeah. having. Yeah. Investing in an assessment is is huge. Um, uh, security assessments and then periodic assessments to ensure that you're still in compliance, yes. um, because people have a tendency to, you know, out of the configurations, and you can you can fall out of compliance pretty quickly. Right. But um, using a managed service provider is always a good idea. Mm -hmm. Smaller businesses again don't necessarily have the expertise and the security staff to do mm -hmm. things thoroughly and properly. Mm -hmm. So spending a little bit for an outsourced consultant to come in is is, is definitely recommended. Mm -hmm. Eric, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Where can people find you? Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me on, Jacob. Really yeah. enjoyed it. Always enjoy talking to you um, and really appreciate uh, your time this morning. Mm -hmm. um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just mm -hmm. search for Eric Reed Cybersecurity Training. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my website is actually ericreedlive.com, E-R-I-C-R-E-E-D-L-I-V-E.com. Mm-hmm. And my email is eric at ericreedlive.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I hope you have Thank a great you. weekend. Take care. You too. All right. Thanks. All right.